I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome Welcome to to Practice Practice Disrupted. Hello, listeners. Hello, Janine. Hey, Evelyn. Hey, listeners. So I realized last week was our first show of season two, and thank you for everyone who tuned in to listen to Janine and my conversation. But now we are in full swing, and this is we're bringing guests back on. And this particular individual has a bit of a different background from those that we've brought on previously. So we're going to start with a guest outside of the industry to give our audience access to ideas we can learn from and potentially bring back into our industry. Yes. So Helen is a fellow co-worker of mine at Slack, but surprise, we are not going to talk specifically about Slack as a work tool. Rather, she has some interesting findings to share around the future of work from the Future Forum. And what the Future Forum is, is they are bringing together original research thought leadership from a variety of different perspective and hands-on contents and delivering them to leaders to talk about how to build better teams. Helen Cup is the Director of Product Strategy for the Future Forum, where she leads membership program development and strategic partnerships. She previously led the strategy and analytics team at Slack, where she drove various cross-functional initiatives such as international launch and strategy, building Slack's professional services offering, and fundraising and direct listing efforts. Prior to a career in technology, Helen was a consultant with Bain & Company, which is a global management company, for those who don't know. And she has an MBA from Harvard Business School. And she's very passionate about advocating for and creating better support for working moms. Great. Let's cut to the interview. Yeah. So um, my name is Helen Cup. And I currently am the head of product strategy for Future Forum, a new initiative uh, within Slack. And being head of product strategy means a couple things. I'm um, responsible for you know shaping and building out the Future Forum membership program, as well as um, pulling together our founding partnership, a consortium of companies that go much deeper into the research um, and research collaboration with us on Future Forum. And I've I've been with Slack for four and a half years now and actually started my role in strategy and analytics before transitioning over to product and then leading product strategy for Future Forum. And across those experiences, as well as in prior companies and roles, I've done a lot of work on a lot of different projects um, that look like, you know, building initiatives from zero to one, um, sort of forming new functions, um, spinning up new projects and all of that. So Future Forum really fit nicely into that. So what is what is Future Forum for Slack? So Future Forum is this sort of mix between a think tank type of organization where we are thinking a lot about the research and the data behind understanding the change in how people are working, especially with the shift to virtual and remote work this year. Um, and we are pairing a lot of those data and insights with um, an event stream. So um, want to take sort of data and move that into 
conversations with executives at Fortune 500 companies to turn that into the actual practices and policies that are required to actually implement, you know, those sort of insights and changes within organizations. Um, so we didn't want this to be just kind of theoretical. We do see that um, a big thing about future of work is, you know, we're all experimenting, we're all trying this out. We we are learning as we go, um, and that conversation is equally as important. So Future Forum is sort of this umbrella for, for both sides of that work, the, the research agenda and, and um, the data that we're pulling together to inform how we're approaching all of this, as well as the, the conversations, the companies, the executives that we are working closely with um, to continue iterating and learning about what practices work in the field. Yeah, and I was excited to bring Helen on from Slack. You're the first fellow Slack coworker for me to bring on, but I was really interested in having you because of the work that you're doing with Future Forum. And I think there's a lot of findings that are coming out of what you're doing that architects can not only bring to bear in their own practice, but just acknowledge that this is what their clients are going through as well. One of my biggest concerns, for instance, is that similar to Slack, a lot of architecture firms were not fully remote or, you know, did not have the setup to go remote, like pre-pandemic, and a lot of them created a ton of band-aids, right, in this move to a fully remote workforce. And in going back, and a lot of firms are talking about reentry and what does that look like, I'm worried, as architects tend to do, that they will take all of these band-aids they've created and just roll them out like it's everyday operations and really not holistically look at the changes that they should be making to everything from operations, policy, people, process, leadership, management, that really makes a move to a more hybrid practice or a more flexible workplace really productive and possible. Anyways, could you tell us a little bit about the first kind of deep study coming out of the Future Forum related to the remote experience index? Yeah, we we kicked off, you know, Future Forum and all of this work with a fairly large study um, that you referenced, the Remote Employee Experience Index. Um, and that's a survey of over 9,000 knowledge workers um, all around the world. We kicked that off back in July. And it's a study that we plan on um, releasing every quarter so that we start to monitor what is changing in terms of sentiment and experience and where we are settling out in, you know, how people are feeling and grappling with the remote work and the, the shift to, to remote work. And that's been really interesting for us. So. Um, you know, when we kicked off the survey, we asked a lot of questions around like, what are the benefits of, you know, going virtual? What are the challenges that you're experiencing? And post pandemic, what do you want to return to? Those are kind of big questions that we, we asked. And on the, on the benefits and challenges side, we found things that I, I think are not surprising to all of us who've been, you know, living this life for, for the last nine months. Benefits were things like no commuting, work-life balance, um, increased productivity for a lot of us. And the challenges were things like maintaining relationships, staying focused, and for some of us, unstable Wi-Fi as we try to do everything over Zoom. But despite the challenges and the Zoom fatigue that some of us are feeling, 
the thing that we kept finding in the data was that this change that you know all of us have undergone to shift to more you know, virtual work um, and more distributed work really opened everyone's eyes to this new potential for rebalancing work and home and rethinking where work gets done. So our sort of 9,000 plus knowledge workers, when asked where they wanted to work coming out of the pandemic, 72% wanted some sort of hybrid model, a mix between office and you know work remote. Um, very few people wanted, you know, five full days in the office. And similarly, very few people wanted the, you know, five full days from home or remote. And that I think is really interesting because we've been hearing about some of the, the challenges around um, connecting, maintaining relationships, all of that, that um, has been much harder in the pandemic. But it's clear that we are, the world is shifting towards, you know, some, some model of hybrid. And Evelyn, you mentioned this at the beginning, like, a bit more of a blank slate for us, right? This is an opportunity for us to rethink how we are working together. Um, we we aren't held back by all the notions that we had before about we, what we couldn't do, what was limited by the four walls of the office. We blew through all of those like myths at the beginning of this year. Um, and companies, you know, many companies pivoted within one to two weeks which is incredible. You think about how long companies go through like change efforts. It's usually in the order of at least like six to nine months, right? Um, and so the data shows that there's this real desire to move towards hybrid. And I think one of the biggest things that we're trying to unpack with companies and through the data is how to best do that, right? I think hybrid is, is harder, but the, the how part is is worth digging into more. So for a lot of architecture firms, they really resisted this idea of remote work. And so everything was built around going into the office five days a week. And in speculating about what tech culture's like, which is radically different than architecture studio culture, um, I think, you know, the, the narrative is that you guys had more flexibility in general about being able to work from home sometimes. So I'm curious if you guys can talk about from your viewpoint, how how did it impact people who worked at Slack who might have had some flexibility already built into their work week? Yeah. So I will say that at Slack, we definitely had more flexibility even even pre-COVID. We had, you know, already been using Slack as kind of our primary tool where we were sharing information and, you know, making sure everyone was updated on the latest decisions and, and all of that. Um, so we had a bit of a leg up there, but I I think even despite that, um, I think, you know, Evelyn actually and her team pulled this data together about Slack when we looked at, you know, how many people were actually coming into the office. We found that the average was, you know, three days a week, not five. And so there was already some flexibility about working from home and working remotely that was built into how we operated. But even so, the shift to fully remote this year has been really eye opening. It's been um, it's required us to to think about new ways to work together. It's forced us to think about, you know, like our meeting norms is a great example. Right. When we moved to fully remote, it, it felt actually like we 
increased our meeting load. Like everyone was deciding that we needed to, to jump on Zoom to have conversations. And we had a real conversation internally about, you know, this is not sustainable. Like you can't really have flexible work if you're still in back-to-back meetings from nine to five, right? Like that's not flexible. <laughs> you're scheduled in. And the only way to build more flexibility for our employees is to think about opportunities to sort of basically kill some of those meetings, right? What what actually didn't need to get done, like status checks are a really great example of you can do that asynchronously. You can do that in a channel. You can do that in an email thread. You can, you know, you can just sort of send it and let people read it on their own time. And that's actually an interesting thing that we found in our research. Um, so the, the beautiful thing about the remote employee experience index is by creating an index, we can compare that score across different practices that uh, knowledge workers and companies were, were utilizing. And we saw that with people and companies um, that were still doing live status checks, their scores were lower from a productivity standpoint, from a sense of belonging standpoint, than people who had moved status checks to, you know, something more asynchronous um, and using modern tools for that. Sense of belonging was actually, you know, positive uh, rather than being negative. And we hypothesized that that's because they're using live time for more productive, meaningful conversations like team building or actually discussing meaty topics rather than talking about the quick, you know, status update on their work. Yeah, I wanted to circle back and we've, we've kind of hit on this already, but you, you know, you mentioned Helen that hybrid is harder and I I just want to make sure that our listeners understand kind of why hybrid is harder and you know, the fact that if, if you expect everyone to be in the office five days a week, then team meetings become very easy. Everyone's always there. Same thing if you run an entirely remote experience. But if you try to mix the two, then at any given time, if you're offering true full flexibility, you're never going to have a full team of even four people necessarily in the same place at the same time, unless it's done with a certain intentionality around it. So, you know, we've already mentioned this a few times that this is really an opportunity to rethink things from the ground up, anything about meetings or or just like how you do things asynchronously. Is there anything else that you maybe came out of the remote experience that, you know, you kind of want to highlight as specific areas that really need to change or really need like a more thorough look at as we move to the hybrid, this hybrid kind of working experience? Yeah, I think you, um, you really sort of anchored on the, the key point there, which is just intentionality that we have to bring to all of the the norms and the rituals that we had as a team, as an organization working together. We touched on the the meeting piece, but but it's exactly that. Um, with with the office, right? You had this system that made sure that everyone was in the same place, roughly around the same time, doing work. And with a hybrid model. You just you don't have that anymore, right? You don't. You have some people who might be in the office. You might have some people who are remote. 
um, one of the biggest risks with the hybrid model that we find, um, not not in our data, but sort of in conversation with a lot of companies that we work with, is the risk of creating a remote second class. And that's because if you think about it, we've actually seen a lot of value from moving fully remote this year, where our teams at Slack, we had teams in Denver and Pune who were often working with teams in San Francisco and they felt left out, right? They were kind of the, the lone voice on Zoom when 10 people were in the conference room kind of ideating on something or discussing something important. And with everyone going fully on Zoom, they sort of felt like they had a, a seat at the table, right? They had a, a tile on the screen. And now in the shift to hybrid, you might have sort of 50-50, but it's also, if you're not intentional about it, if you're not thoughtful about, you know, if all of your leaders, for example, still go into the San Francisco office nine to five, five days a week, even if you're not explicit about that needing to happen, very naturally, people are going to gravitate to coming back into the office because that is where the leaders are. That is where opportunity is. And you're going to revert back to, you know, kind of a default model of going into the office five days a week. And the people who can't do that, who live in different locations, are just going to be left out. They're going to feel kind of um, in a career cul-de-sac is what um, is what people used to refer to, you know, the non-headquartered offices. And I think to combat that, I wish there was like another, you know, two or three things that I could say you could focus on to be intentional about. But it is actually intentionality end to end. Right. So it's thinking about everything from, you know, how you like think about onboarding um, and bringing people in. It's thinking about mentoring and the sort of like day to day ways that people learn from each other, make decisions together brainstorm on ideas. How do you make sure voice all the voices, whether you're in the office or remote, are being incorporated into that decision and sort of everything in between. What I've seen teams do really well um, when they navigated this is just taking a step back and saying, okay, there's two things we want to do. One is let's just look at how we like how we all work and what do we need as a team, right? So what are the hours that we are online together? How do we want to set some explicit norms about when we respond, what type of things can we do asynchronously, how do we build focus time for all of us to, to do work, right, instead of being bogged down by meetings. So like, let's, let's just as a team, as a department, as an organization, revisit just how we work together and just set some things explicitly down. The second big piece of that is recognizing that you are going to iterate. Right. You won't be able to design the perfect solution from the start. We are all figuring out how this works for different teams, for different personalities. I'm super introverted and I work very different than my boss who's like, let me just jump in with this idea and let me just like sync live with you. Every team, every person needs something a little bit different. Their situations are different and also it's changing. So building a process and a way for for your organization and for your teams to actually get feedback, iterate, experiment, and be open to sort of like trying and trying and trying again. Um, that's arguably more important in building out that intentional design that makes hybrid successful 
than the ori original, you know, norms and policies that you set. So it's kind of the, the balance of the two. In the context of architecture and architects, architects I've spoken with that they often are mentioning that they're worried about the equity issues around this virtual practice and like excluding people. I'm glad you brought up the idea about introverts and, and how, you know, where do they show up in the conversation around um, virtual conversations? Uh, sometimes voices, you know, it's not equitable in a virtual setting sometimes for all voices to come forward. Um, so that's one idea. And I also would love for you guys to just pause and elaborate on this idea of what asynchronous work is, because I don't know that our audience will understand what that is. Yeah, it's a great call out. I definitely say asynchronous first a lot. So let me use an actual like a situation because it makes it a lot more real for me and, and for the audience. We've been hearing a lot from executives that, you know, they're worried about creativity and innovation and actually generating high quality ideas that they can execute on as a company when we are working remotely or when we are more distributed, even in the future. There's this belief that you need to be together in a room, in an offsite, brainstorming on the whiteboard, putting post-its on the walls and, and moving things around like a very tactile. Everyone has that like, you know, imagery in their mind about how design thinking happens. Um, this is very true, by the way. Like I would say, 95% of all design principles would be like, absolutely, that's the only way that you can yeah. innovate. Yeah, and if I can't see you working, you're not working. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's, there's something like beautifully tactile about it, right? Like you're going to like draw out ideas, you like put it, you move it. There's, there is value to that. I'm not discounting that. Like I, I facilitate a lot of workshops and I love, I have rainbow post-its at home. Trust me, it's all on my walls already. It's really um I'm a nerd. Um, but the research shows, like not just our research, decades of, of research into this topic of creativity and innovation shows that brainstorming live doesn't actually produce the best ideas or the most ideas. Um, the best way to do this is to kind of balance individual work and group work. So you kind of have like individuals come up with ideas and then aggregate all of that before coming back as a group and discussing it. That's when you generate a more divergent set of ideas. Um, because if you're, if you, you know, I'm sure you've all been in that situation where like you have 10 people in a room, you're asking everyone for ideas, you go around in the circle. And by the time you hit like the third or fourth person, the 10th person is like no longer paying attention to anyone. They're trying to think of their like unique and innovative idea that they won't get judged on. And, you know, maybe the seventh person is like, oh, God, they took my idea. Now I have to think of something else. It's a really high stress, like judgy environment. And it is not conducive to ideas. Um, and it's actually much better. And it's, it's also much better for introverts like myself. I hate brainstorming live. Like I just I can't. I'm like very self-conscious about what I'm saying and whether I'm saying something that's super smart in the room. It's much better for, you know, introverts and, and for people generally to say, okay, I have some homework, right? I'm going to do things quote unquote asynchronously. So on my own time offline where I'm not live with other people have some time to actually like be thoughtful about the ideas that I'm generating, um, the way that I'm phrasing it, et cetera, put that together. Um, so that's kind of what I mean by asynchronous first. Do that individual work when you're not together first, 
then you find time to come back together um, and share out. And that's when I think there's interesting things can, that can happen, like finding patterns in like all 10 people have the same idea, even though they work separately. Very cool. Or, wow, this is totally out of left field, this idea that we had never even thought about. That's also really interesting. But breaking out a process like brainstorming into an asynchronous first step before coming back together is a really interesting way to balance out, you know, how to, one, make sure that you are bringing all the voices to the table and including everyone in that conversation. And two, you know, being asynchronous first, leveraging, like, not spending two hours together trying to do this thing, but actually maybe, you know, giving everyone time to do this on their own and then only spending 30 minutes together live, having done all that pre-work asynchronous, and then coming back to have a much meatier conversation that frees up your calendar, builds more flexibility, and makes those times where you're actually seeing other people and discussing things much richer and much more productive. In our pursuit to diversify our profession, we're just trying to find ways to include people and be inclusive. I think I've heard there's a concern that this virtual practice will put, you know, some designers at an advantage versus others who might not have an opportunity to shine in this virtual setting. But hopefully that there's there's more research coming forward on that and how how we can champion different voices in the in the workspace. I think that because we have this opportunity to to rethink norms and rituals for how we work together, we also have an opportunity to explore like different formats, right? Um, different ways of pulling ideas together, like you know the pre work before, et cetera. That we can actually experiment more with ways to include more people and create more equity um, in different processes rather than just, just taking it for granted. But it is it is something that I think we are we are still figuring out across the board. Interestingly enough, and it's always <laughs> I'm just realizing architects and like when it comes to business, we always have a very pessimistic view of the future. And um, I, I, I do contribute to that. You know, I, I kind of like, I'm hopeful that we, we come out of this very differently, but I'm also like, but you know, knowing architects will probably snap back to as much of the normal as. Um, so I'm, you know, at fault to contributing to that. But I mean, one of, one of the best opportunities of a hybrid work situation, which I feel that tech is going to definitely accommodate for is the option to hire a more diverse workforce away from areas where you were previously only geographically had a physical presence. This is really true for architects in areas where they might suffer from brain drain or, you know, the local pool of bodies that they can pull from is just inherently not diversity. And they're trying to bring more diversity to their practice. So I think for me, that's kind of another way of looking at this as an opportunity. But again, back to Helen's point, like this, we really need to be re-looking at the norms coming out of this and how we approach everything. Because if we snap back to business as usual, then it's 
is going to, I feel is going to be worse than because we snapped back to business as usual, but we also decided to try to do flexible work. Yeah, I, I cannot emphasize that enough. I do think that the opportunity is there. Um, and lots of companies are actually thinking about this real opportunity to hire from, you know, more diverse locations. And that will bring kind of diverse talent into the employee base. Um, one of the things that we explored in the remote employee experience, right, um, is we, lo- we did look at how um, the remote employee experience was impacting different groups. And at an overall level, we found that sense of belonging was something that suffered with remote work, right? It was the only dimension when we looked at work-life balance, stress and anxiety, productivity, sense of belonging, et cetera. Sense of belonging was the only dimension that was negative when we looked at work remote compared to the office. But what was interesting is as we unpack this for different groups of employees and we looked at employees of color, so black, Hispanic and Asian employees, for example, we actually found that their sense of belonging in this virtual experience was higher than their white colleagues. And that was was really interesting for us because so we held an event um, around diversity, equity and belonging. It was an academic summit. Um, with top researchers in this field. Um, and Brian Lowry, who's a professor at Stanford, actually called out that this is um, this aligns with his own experience, um, where he talks about, you know, the way that I talk right now is different from the way that I talk at home. Like I show up and I code switch, and that's a cost. Um, it's a it's another reason why you don't see people advancing. It's really exhausting when you show up every day and you find a way to fit in. And those are those are kind of the barriers that a lot of employees of color feel when they step into the office. And I think one interesting thing about virtual work is that you can be more yourself, right? You are surrounded more by kind of your environment, your family, you can be more yourself. And so that is an, an environment that inc- increases inclusion and belonging in the workplace. But at the same time, there's still risk. Like we talked to um Billy Dexter, who works at Hydric and Struggles and is part of the Executive Leadership Council. And he said that he was coaching a lot of, um, you know, black leaders that he spoke to. And a lot of them actually really had a lot of hesitation in this virtual world of turning their video on. And by deciding to turn their video off in a room full of other leaders, they're kind of, they're not quite showing up in the same way. They're actually holding their career back by not turning their video on because they're stressed out about, you know, how their house looks or, you know, the people running around, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a long-winded way of saying, like, one of the things that we we do well at Slack, for example, is making it okay to be not camera ready and actually allowing for people to feel comfortable like turning off their video and making that normal and not something like weird and one-off like you're the one person who's off video um and and then kind of quote unquote not seen right in the room and so that's another way to think about like how do you be intentional about that sort of dynamic it's really small like it's turning your video on or off on zoom but that really does impact how people are um you know, how people are showing up as a group, how they feel like, you know, 
they are part of the conversation or not, they, that they are able to um, feel comfortable doing that. Um, and so big, big opportunity for more diverse hiring and, and bringing people in. Also a really big area that I think we are not talking about enough or thinking about enough in terms of ensuring not just diversity, but but actual equity and actual inclusion when we are thinking about, you know, how we are interacting with each other. So Helen, you've been giving us some really great tidbits um, about a variety of different things that I'm hoping our listeners, uh, both firm leaders as well as kind of even the individual contributors can can make suggestions and ensure more intentionality uh, going forward. But you guys have also put out a number of playbooks that I think goes a little bit deeper, but but begins to categorize kind of all of these things that you're talking about. I didn't know if you wanted to work your way through some of the ones that we have on the website right now, or maybe just touch on one or two points out of each. Yeah. Like you said, we we have published quite a lot of thoughts and playbooks on the Future Forum website around how to think about the future of work. Um, some of the points we've already touched on um, that I've talked about, but a couple of my um, my favorites. So I already talked about you know unlocking creativity and innovation for distributed teams. That playbook goes into 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 that in a little bit more depth and talks about things like brain writing instead of brainstorming as a an example of what that looks like. Um, the ones that I think are foundational to to how we should rethink of the, uh, how we work together in the future. There's one around making flexible schedules work for your team. That goes much more deeply into, you know, how to think about asynchronous first. It talks about, you know, structuring bursty team time versus more asynchronous focus time for individuals to kind of balance, you know, deep focus work to getting things done with the back and forth kind of live discussion and, and tackling and problem solving that, you know, you want to do with your team that also touches on something that I talked about earlier, which is how do you raise the bar for meetings, right? How do you think about reevaluating the meetings that you don't need and how to set up the meetings that you do have for the most success? And, and if you raise the bar, you naturally figure out where the cutoff is, right? Like these definitely don't need to be meetings, but we talk about things live. And then the final thing there on making flexible schedules work is, um, is actually setting notifications off by default. Um, something that's important if you work in Slack, for example, the whole premise of that playbook, all of those points that I touched on, is around creating space for focus work. Because I think, especially with today's knowledge work, we've, we've shifted to a world where most of our time is spent searching for information, being in meetings, staying updated. It's not the actual doing the work part of the job. And for many of us, like I'm a mom to an 11th month, 11 month old baby. I do my work after he goes to bed. Right? That's how I categorize like my work work. And that is a really unfortunate state of the world that we've gotten ourselves into. 
Um, and so the whole premise of that playbook is like, if you actually want flexible schedules to work, like you need to figure out how to flip that equation to doing, not doing the actual work at night. You're doing, you know, the work during the day and you're finding a way to, you know, structure the synchronous, the live team times, those discussions, um, as the most effective things, uh, most effective time that you can kind of pull together. And I think that is really critical to, not just happier workers and employees and more productive people, but you basically need that if you want to be intentional about coordinating with people that are not in the same office, who are not side by side with each other. So I think that is really core to the future of work. I think the other is uh, there's this playbook around like how do you shift power away, away from the traditional headquarters? And that's the flip side to this, which is, you know, we've been talking about how should you think about it for yourself and your immediate team. Um, and I touched on this earlier. If your executives are still going into the office, still kind of going into San Francisco or New York or wherever, it doesn't matter what your written policies are. Your unwritten policies are telling people that actually nothing has changed. The best way to move up is to do the thing that your C-suite is doing, which is what you were doing before. And so you have to be intentional, not only about what you write down, but how your leaders are modeling that behavior, you know, across the organization. So that playbook really is um, more geared towards, you know, senior leadership and executives. And it talks about a couple of things, right? It talks, it's primarily around their behaviors and how they model behaviors uh, that'll help shift the future of work. But it's one is very simply like distribute your executives. You know, Slack hired our chief people officer, Nadia Rawlinson, out of Chicago with no intention of her coming to San Francisco after the pandemic because it was a signal to the entire employee base that we mean what we say that we we do want you to be able to work from anywhere and it is not required to be in San Francisco to move up. Um, so distribute your executives the same way that you're thinking about distributing your employee base. Yeah, I think it's really, really important that as we look at the creation of these norms, that leadership models them. If I look at the majority of firm leadership right now, and we are in a situation where we have an aging population in our leadership and firms really struggling with what does that transition to the next generation look like, I see a lot of older principals that like are going to insist on coming into the office five days a week. And if you think about even back to your studio days, like just the culture we always joke that, you know, the architecture school is the lighthouse and we're spending every single waking hour in the studio. But you have to admit that some of the time that we spent in studio was just because the rest of studio was was there. We weren't productive all of those hours all the time. And I think that's the same type of culture we create when we come back into the office. And I, I do know I've had conversations where like, especially when I was like that early eager go-getter. I was like, I'm going to show up before my principal gets on site and I'm going to make sure that I don't, like I stay as long as they do and I don't go home until after they go home. So I think that in particular is is a really good point. I also think 
we need to make sure that we're training managers to expect the same thing out of their employees. I definitely talked to people even at Slack pre-pandemic, and I think this is true of any organization of our size, that the amount of flexibility that any individual contributor had was really based on how their manager managed them. So some people had super flexible schedules, but if I got moved to a different team, I might find myself in a situation where I feel pressured to show up every day. And that like changes how I feel about working at that company at that moment. A hundred percent. We've been talking to a lot of our executives, um, not just about how they should model behavior, but exactly that. The, the type of training that we need to put in place to not just help our executives, but our, our managers really think about how they should be setting the norms, role modeling things, like how they should be working with their teams to ensure that everyone feels like they have flexibility, knows how to, how to manage, um, you know, and navigate the new norms and all of that. But I think reskilling managers and training and um, making sure that there is additional support as people are changing how they work together is, is really, really important. I remember this pre-pandemic, um, my husband is um, an engineering leader and he managed an org of over 40 people at his last, um, in his last company. And at the time, like he, you know, he was working really hard. He would stay, you know, past six o'clock. And we had this conversation at home where I was like, you cannot do that. You cannot, you are burning out your team. And he's like, no, my team knows that they can leave. And I'm like, no, your team is going to arrive before you and they will stay after you leave. And if you don't do that until after six, they're just going to stay later. Um, and so it made a big difference to his team and to their team scores when he put a hard line at like stopping at five and leaving. He might work and try to be, try to do his own kind of individual, you know, focus work when he's at home, but the way that he communicates what was important through his actions with the team when they could see it was really important. I really appreciate that you guys have brought up several of these issues and it might be counterintuitive for especially new managers. Um, to think about flexibility being a management tool, but it's something that I've really picked up on working with Evelyn because I, I know she's working at Slack, so she's exposed to this tech culture, but there's so much more flexibility in the way that she's engaging than what I see when I'm working with my architecture firms that I'm consulting with. There's a lot more rigidity, but I want to make the point that I love this idea of modeling um, the behavior, but also that flexibility can be a management tool in support of management and not just that you have to be very rigid in terms of being a leader and managing. And I also want to come back to this idea because I like hearing both of you mention that you're mothers. And I know that in creating a flexible schedule that you all work in the evenings, which is what you need to do in order to juggle both work and raising your family. I was speaking with someone who was telling me about a woman in her firm who she was worried that this woman was going to lose some forward momentum on her career because she's a mother and she's trying to figure out this balancing act with her husband of managing the kids and getting to her meetings. 
And the person I was speaking to was basically saying that because this woman couldn't hit the meeting times of when the project team had to meet, that she was worried it was going to hold her back ultimately because of the culture of that firm. And I want to just emphasize that you all both are finding success and being able to have that flexibility to work when you need to. Um, So I was hoping you could elaborate on any lessons that you've learned that you could pass forward to managers who are new to that concept. (laughs) I don't know. Janine knows me as a workaholic. Like, I don't feel like I'm a good example of how I manage my time (laughs) sometimes. Well, but you know, like, you still take time to go have dinner. Yeah. You know, like, you take time to have cuddle breaks like there's things that have to happen bath time for example like <laughs> oh, cuddle breaks are the best yeah well i think that's one of the best perks of working at home is the cuddle breaks um <laughs> but i i think wow i mean to that person i would say can you move the team meeting i mean <laughs> is it is it that hard I know, to move I felt- the team meeting you, you you usually schedule <sighs> team meetings around when it's most beneficial for everyone on the meeting to meet anyways I know. But I think because she's not in a leadership position, she's at the mercy of like the team. And honestly, hearing the story, a little part of me died inside because I know this is affecting a lot of people in our industry. Um, It just seems so unfair. And I just, it gives me hope to hear both of your stories in that you guys are figuring that out with your teams. And there is a culture out there that models a behavior where there's intentionality and understanding that mothers need flexibility. And that you don't lose your job or get held back in your career. I, I mean, I think I would go back to what, you know, everything Helen has said about intentionality and especially giving voice to the introverts or those who, I guess, in this individual's career thinks that they're not in a position where they can speak up. So the role of the manager then becomes, you know, if I'm requiring my team to meet, let's make sure that we are accommodating for everyone's schedule and meeting at the best time that they are not only able to be present, but it can be productive for everyone. That's where the intentionality stems from. And then I think, you know, a lot of what I do at my work at Slack when it comes to to color breaks, or even, you know, non-parents do this all the time too, just like the mental and wellness break of like saying that they're going to go out and take a walk, or they're going to take this Zoom call outside on a walk just because I need to get outside and just communicating that. And then alternatively, everybody saying, not not only saying like, thanks for letting us know, but also I feel like it's in our culture to be like, good for you, you should go do that more often and encourage it from that standpoint. Yeah. I want to echo that one of the best parts of working from home is the cuddle breaks. Like, <laughs> is wow, is it great that I actually get to be around to see my baby grow up this first year and learn all of the things that he's learning right now? I'm a I'm a new mom and so it's just it's like a miracle every month he's become a completely different person and I get to watch that. But I died a little inside too when when you said how inflexible that culture is. I don't know where I would be without the flexibility of my team. Like I've been breastfeeding all year and for anyone who's listening, who's a mom, who's breastfed, you know that like, I cannot time my baby's schedule whatsoever, right? Like he wakes up when he feels like he wants to wake up and then he wants to feed it whenever he feels like feeding. 
and it's been really important for my team to know where I'm at, so like what my situation is at home, why I need to sometimes turn my video off, or sometimes I just need to say like, hey, I can't make this meeting, or I'm going to be 15 minutes late. Can you recap that meeting for me in channel? And that's the value of, of asynchronous first thinking. It bleeds into even when you do have a meeting. It's to say documentation is important. For anyone who can't make the meeting, for anyone who's like not in the same time zone even, let's not talk about just moms. You're not in the same time zone. You want to know what's happening. You couldn't be part of the conversation. The documentation piece of you know how we work together is, is really important to make sure people are included. And that actually helps me navigate my day when I'm juggling, like when am I breastfeeding? When am I jumping back into work? You know, when does it pop out because my baby is screaming his head off and and nobody knows what to do that's really helped me you know stay productive stay connected to the team even if i cannot be present from the typical nine to five that's a that's a big piece of it um you know i think to the other piece we talked about intentionality again and i talked earlier about you know reskilling middle managers and actually thinking about the training we have to recognize that the job of the manager is becoming more and more complex, right? Before it was really easy. You have a factory line. They had to check like people clocked in, people clocked out. They were, you know, doing the right specific task in the, in the manufacturing line or whatever. Um, there are like standards um, that they could just sort of observe and, and check the boxes. With knowledge work, with now like distributed work, with everything that's been happening this year, we've heard multiple times now how important it is for managers to take into account different people's working styles, different people's situations, right? You're a mom, you are caregiving for a parent, you got sick with COVID and, you know, have to figure out, you know, some time off. Um, managers have to now be really thoughtful about really understanding all of the nuances from person to person and making sure that they're being thoughtful about structuring like how the team works together when do we have these meetings like i think the job has just gotten more complex because we've taken it out from this very cookie cutter like everyone's a professional and like does the same thing at nine to five in the same place we've added these like additional layers of um, degrees of freedom that managers have to think about. And so in some ways, I, I am like appalled by the inflexibility of that manager. But in other ways, I'm like, it's not their fault. We haven't trained everyone to think this way. We haven't helped people um, make this own shift in their thinking about how do they support their teams? How do they ask for that feedback from their employees that we need to, you know, we need to train managers to do more of that? I think that's a really critical point that you're making, because I do think it's inherited. And it comes from a very long culture of especially coming out of the 1950s, like this very inflexible management style top down. And so, you know, I think we're in the revolution of creating a different era of work. And there is a learning curve. And just being able to stop and think about how do we train people to think differently and put time and invest money and energy into teaching people how to actually manage in a flexible way is so valuable and hard i think that we 
we had to recognize that this is you're not going to get it overnight right and it is okay to make mistakes along the way as long as you like are open to feedback or open to learning but it is not easy by any means why do you guys think that slack has taken such a proactive approach towards being involved in research and development towards these workplace ideas you know if you think about what we are doing with the product right thinking about slack the product creating a more you know connected sort of digital headquarters a lot of the beliefs around the future of work where we're moving towards more flexibility more transparency sort of more human work all of those themes are things that we are putting into the product itself right like it manifests in the thing that we are building and so Stuart and Slack has always been interested in continuing to shape this future of work that is more flexible, more transparent, more human. And so the investment in the research and the data and these conversations isn't surprising at all, right? I think like it's been super important to how we think about the product, continuing these discussions and moving just this broader shift in the market to more flexible work is important to us as a product, but also as leaders, as a company. And it is really interesting to us to hear kind of how other companies, like Fortune 500 companies are thinking about, you know, newer ways of working together. What are they experiencing? And closing that feedback loop, right? Like we are doing things at Slack. We know that we are, we have a little bit more um, of a head start. We're clearly in the product all the time. But it's important for us to understand, you know, where other companies are at, how they are thinking about it, and how that sort of closes the feedback loop and, and gets back into how should we think about the product? How should we think about that as infrastructure to support the future of work and how people are, are changing the way they work together? Okay. So since working at Slack, I want you to share with our audience a productivity tool that you've learned about using Slack that you didn't know until you worked there that really has helped your workflow or improved your use of Slack. I know, Evelyn, you've taught me a couple that I thought were really neat. I know that some of our designers would be really interested since they are on Slack often. Uh, the power of the emoji and the reaction, which... In any thread, right, or anything you post onto Slack, you can react with an emoji. And I think those little darn emojis are like a lot more powerful than you think when it comes to like kind of how you represent yourself, how you congratulate other people, how you let people know that you've seen something. Um, I mean, we actually develop whole workflow processes around like this has been seen, we've followed up with it problem resolved. You can create polls, like have a bulleted list um, and corresponding emojis, and then you vote underneath by hitting the correct emoji for for the poll, which is then what we call a reaction. And it's an unlimited library. Um, and we have so many people that have uploaded great emojis. I really struggle when I'm not in the Slack workspace and I'm like looking for an emoji that doesn't exist in a, like a an AIA Slack channel or a workspace. I'm like, no, that's that's we only have it in Slack. I love custom emojis. I struggle with the same thing. I'm like, where is that mind blown emoji that I really yeah. want? 
why can't I search for that? Gee. <laughs> uh, my my favorite similar small um, productivity hack is the remind function. So in Slack, you can do slash remind and set up like any kind of reminder. But the ways that we use it are are really helpful is um, I set up a reminder in our team channel every Monday morning, just a prompt like, hey, what are your top three priorities this week? Um, so every Monday morning, it like posts in our team channel and then everybody sends their status update, sort of like, here are my top three things this week. Um, and that's just, that's just a workflow that now happens, um, automatically. You can do it in a couple different, you can use it in a couple different ways. You can do that. We have one at the end of the week that says like, Hey, how did this week go? Like, what should we stop, start, continue? Um, and my favorite use of the remind function, you know, we talked about sense of belonging and how, uh, it's been hard to stay connected with people, how to like inject some personal pieces of work back into work when we're all virtual. And so there's a channel for all moms at Slack called Motherboard, the private channel. Yes, <laughs> I love it. And there is um, there is a reminder every Thursday that goes out to the entire channel that says, you know, um, this too shall pass. It's a, it's a 2020 kind of uh, prompt. This too shall pass. But in the meantime, Jokingly, research has showed that expressing your feelings in giphy form helps you feel better. So tell us how you feel this week. Um, and it's this beautiful, like, giphy thread of the funniest responses from moms every week, ranging from, like, exhausted and, like, funny visuals of that to, like, you know, I'm crushing it. Like, I think I had, like, a... I posted a Giphy once of like little piggy, Miss Piggy escaping jail. And I got this like great comment back. They're like, it's, this is so 2020, right? Like Miss Piggy always looks fab and that's great. Cause that's like, <laughs> you're like a strong mom, but you're escaping jail. Cause like, what the hell 2020? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and this week. And so it's just, it's a really fun thread for anyone to engage in and, uh, and that, like, it's just a simple remind function, and uh, the slash commands are often very hidden in Slack, but so many different ways to use that that range from, like, very functional to just very random and fun. Evelyn, I'm glad you brought someone in from Slack because I know a lot of people are very interested in the work that you're doing, and just listening to the conversation between you and Helen gave me a lot of great insight, and I'm sure for our audience, it did also about the way that your company operates and some of the priorities that you guys have established in terms of what you're working on. Yeah. And I, you know, I would like to think that just because I'm in tech, that it doesn't get discounted when we talk about how that can translate to the architecture industry. I feel like what Helen is doing and the research she is doing, there isn't an industry out there right now that aren't asking these type of questions. I think architects will always put themselves in a special little bubble when it comes to we need to be in person to do our creative thinking or similar thoughts. But, you know, there are innovation arms of large organizations that are battling with those those ideas as well. And and what does it mean to create a work environment that is both flexible, but allows you to be as productive as you can be? 
And it was nice to hear that even you guys have struggled with this transition that just happened last year in terms of sending people home. So it's not just that our industry is facing these issues. Like, I think it's a pretty universal challenge for companies right now. Right. If you look, um, I mean, so I'm heavy and deep in the data of our em- employees, right? That's part of what my job is. So when we left, only 3% of our workforce was designated as remote, even though we have a product that allows you to re- work remote as a team better. So the transition, I would say, was probably easier for us because we had the technology in place. But as Helen alluded to, we had to do a lot of thinking around what does that mean for all of our in-person meetings that are now being on Zoom? Uh, and what does that mean for the mental capacity and everything else that people were dealing with, not only in 2020, but in 2021, just in the first few weeks this year. And, you know, how do we manage that and be productive and do all of that outside of the office? We were really rethinking things from the ground up. And I hope, I really hope that architects kind of take heed and understand that it's something all organizations need to do if they're to be successful in this new hybrid model. Right. And I remember coming to tour your office in San Francisco with you. You gave me a tour. So Slack definitely had a built out space. And um, and I guess through this research, part of the conversation that you guys have been having is around this idea of the hybrid model, because you, you know, you have desk space, you have an office building, and now all of your workers are at home. So where, where are you hearing um, this concept of hybrid practice in context to tech and then in context to architecture? Um, well, I think you even, I mean, thankfully, I think it's being adopted into architecture more. Like you even mentioned that you had a conversation with Karen Timberlake recently where they were talking about the hybrid practice, right? So this notion of the hybrid practice, I think, came about because so many, well, all of the workforce went remote, uh, especially for knowledge-based industries like tech and architecture. And for the most part, productivity is always a hard thing to to measure, but you know, we've managed. And because we've managed in what was previously thought as an unmanageable way of doing things, I think there's going to be more demand from the employees to continue to to manage and allow for the flexibility that remote work gives them, whether that is the ability to work asynchronously, which Helen talked about, whether that means that I don't have to bear my commute every day of the week. You know, I I can take time out of the day. Like my walk and talks used to be around downtown San Francisco. Now my walk and talks are around like the the local trails in my neighborhood over, over the phone. But, you know, I think that the employees are going to demand that more just for their own health and well-being. And and employers are going to have to respond. So ultimately, when Slack went and kind of declared, as a few large companies have, that they are now a remote-first company, that means that when you compare apples to apples in a job offering, if, you know, all all benefits aside, except for the ability 
to uh, have greater flexibility with my schedule, you would think that that an employee or a prospective employee is going to go with the company with more flexibility. So we wanted to make sure that we are ensuring our competitiveness by doing that. Mm hmm. And I know you've mentioned the hybrid model is harder. And some of the factors that we heard, there's risk around excluding people in a virtual environment if some people are in the office. And then there's communication challenges that you have to kind of think about in terms of establishing how people are working together and what the expectations are. Yeah, I think Helen you know, covered a lot of it. But just to recap some of that, like we, you know, there is like that the second class of kind of the the virtual participant or the remote participant. And this was true for us, even for our one, you know, engineer, our one engineer that was in New York, where the rest of their team was in San Francisco. So even though they weren't quote unquote remote, because everyone was in the office, um, that person in New York, that person in in Denver, that person in Pune felt like a second class citizen because I am sure we've all experienced that, you know, if you are the one person that's looking into a conference camera and you're seeing the four people around the table on the other side, it's really hard to interject into that conversation um, and to feel an equal at the table in that instance. So there's that. I think what I'm most concerned about in architecture firms is well, actually, I have a lot of concerns, obviously, but, you know, in the the adoption of these more flexible behaviors that will inevitably have the older generation of firm leaders who are showing up to the office the same way they have every single day, and inevitably, their behavior is going to set the standard. It doesn't matter what you've put in your values and your mission um, and how you intend to work together. If If that's how they're showing up every day, and they've hired good people, they, you know, people tend to model what they see from their leaders. So, so you're not actually going to, even though you say that you offer the flexibility, you know, there's kind of this unwritten rule that it's, it's not as flexible as you anticipated it. No, that's a definite. And, and I've seen that firsthand, um, people being too, they want to, meet the expectations of the partners. And so they're not going to take risks if they perceive it as a risk, you know, that the partner would see it as not ideal. Um, you also mentioned measuring things, which I think is kind of an interesting idea. And I think a lot of companies would probably want to know, like, how do you measure things that are this fluid and abstract and then create standards and make revisions later. This is kind of a hard thing to keep a eye on at times. Yeah, I don't know if we're measuring. I mean, we're I, I think we're measuring where we're spending our time. So productivity is a really hard thing to measure. Um, and different people are going to be do like have a different varying productivity level based on the tasks that they're doing and their expertise towards their tasks. So I think, you know, in terms of how we're managing as a team. I think it's really more about like looking at where we're spending the time and how we're making the most of the time together. So there's these great playbooks and and we go a little bit into this into the the hybrid practice um, playbook that we're building out on the practice of architecture. But it's you know, it's even down to the meetings. How do you create greater intentionality at the meetings so that people aren't showing up 
to listen to a talking head for a half an hour before you even start discussing things. So if you were to dump that into an asynchronous work model, where you're trying to limit the Zoom time, for instance, that talking head would be pre-recorded. People would have time uh, on their own to gather their thoughts. And you could even pre-populate a whiteboard before you show up to the meeting to have a really engaging conversation and jump in immediately uh, in the same 30-minute window you would have had scheduled for the hour meeting anyways. So I think it's really looking at... um, we looked at our Zoom use and it was off the charts and then asking ourselves, like, is this healthy? Is this where we want our team members to be spending their time? And then kind of dialing back, okay, what are the parameters that we have to set around how you set meetings? And then, you know, begin to block off that time. We've also, there's also been some departments that have blocked off time either for working together. That's not necessarily, I I know there's some firms that have been sitting on Zoom all day and I feel for those people. Like, I don't imagine (laughs) what that's like, just working quietly next to your coworkers on Zoom all day. But um, it's kind of like that, but we have Slack the tool. So it's it's just that like every day between one and two, know that if you need to get a hold of the team member that you're going to like, like that is the time to get all of your questions and out there because you'll be able to get really quick responses because you know they'll be in front of their computer, not necessarily on Zoom. And then conversely, we've also set like, there's some departments that set no meeting time. So they say like Friday is no meeting. I would actually love that. Um, But like, yeah, so like no meetings on Friday. So then that like conversely allows people to have the freedom to schedule Friday And then we also measure that against an employee engagement survey, which I feel like there are so few firms out there that really do a good employee engagement survey and take that information and adapt it and say, here's here's where we could change an operations and process to really pick up engagement in that place. Um, So that's kind of another place that we tend to measure things. Mm -hmm. It comes back to a couple of the other ideas that you've mentioned, which include um, being able to go remote and hire a more diverse uh, workforce, you know, reaching outside of the limits of your local community. You know, now that we're virtual, you can hire people across the country. And it's an opportunity for training those middle managers better. Um, you know, that is something I think that's been lacking in our field. And we are inviting someone on the show in a couple weeks after this airs that's going to be able to talk to that in more depth, but specifically targeting training inside the firm at different levels, and especially for those middle managers who need to learn those skills to help lead teams through project work. So there's a few things there to unpack, right? It's also it's teaching people who are used to managing teams in person to manage them remotely. But it's also helping them understand consistently what is the expectations of all the employees of the firm? And then how are you able to deliver against those as a manager? So and I alluded to it in Helen's discussion, I'd talked to engineers at Slack that were really worried about like having their manager change, because that means that their quality of life as an employee is really dependent upon their manager. And that's true of a lot of organizations. So how do you create a standard quality of life while still allowing managers to kind of manage in their own way, but meet employee expectations? Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, I think that's a good place to end it for now, knowing that we're going to continue this conversation in future episodes. 
Yeah. So I think this is a new beginning for us. And I hope that the architecture profession really views it as a new beginning. I also want to acknowledge that it's probably going to get harder before it gets easier, that making these transitions is a challenge for any organization, any profession out there. But I hope that we can get through it together. And on that note, thank you for listening and tune in next week. Thanks for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Visit us at practiceofarchitecture.com to find out more about future episodes and the changing nature of practice. We have several ways you can get involved with our growing community. Find us on social media at Practice of Arc. You can also become a member of the POA Lab or join us on Patreon. And if you want to take your career or practice to the next level, Janine and I also consult, provide workshops, and speak regularly on this research, and we would love an opportunity to collaborate with you. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about other podcasts and video channels in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. We are also looking for sponsors who want to partner with us in 2021 and beyond. If that's you, please contact me directly at evelyn at practiceofarchitecture.com. If you like the research we're doing here, please help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple. We appreciate you subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to share with your friends and feel free to let us know what other topics or speakers you're interested in hearing from. Thanks for listening and see you next week.